Thank you, Kyle and team. Uh, I just already feel the presence of God in this place. Um, if you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, and if you don't have a Bible, feel free to raise your hand, and an usher will come by to bring you a Bible, and if you don't have a Bible, you can, that's our gift to you. Please do take that home with you and keep it. Um, Pastor Paul is not preaching today. Uh, if we can kind of keep this in this room, he got a phone call this week from someone in the NFL. <laughs> Don't, Taylor Swift. Um, and she was just, she called because apparently she wants some marriage counseling for some, I think some guy that I think is in the NFL. Um, so just be praying for him today as he navigates that. Um, the other thing I want to bring up too is the, the twins lost yesterday. So if you're DVRing it, sorry, but, um, but it was fun if you watch the game, it's so fun to have them in the, in the playoffs, uh, that they had got those two homers in the seventh inning, and this Royce Lewis guy is just, oh man, what a blast. And I, uh, I really hope that they can kind of pull this off, I'm, you know, we'll see. But, um, and I, I really do love this time of year, especially when the Twins are in the playoffs, you have the Vikings and the Twins, like football and baseball are overlapping at the same time. But it would have been really fun, too, if the Vikings could know how to win. So I'm just trying to have a positive. But um, I came across this thing, uh, George Carlin, the, the late George Carlin. Uh, I hate to bring him up, sorry. But um, he, he once contrasted uh, football and baseball. And I thought it would, this was a good contrast. He, he shows the dramatic differences between uh, these two sports. Um, so football. Football is a 20th century technological struggle. Baseball is a 19th century pastoral game. Base football is played on a gridiron in a stadium, sometimes called Soldier Field or War Memorial Stadium. Baseball is played on a diamond in a park, the baseball park. Birds chirping, little children playing. Football begins in the fall where everything's dying. <laughs> Baseball begins in the spring, the season of new life. In football, you wear a helmet. In baseball, you wear a cap. Football is concerned with downs, what down it is. Baseball is concerned with ups. Who's up? In football, you receive a penalty. In baseball, you made an error. <laughs> in football, the specialist comes in to kick something. In baseball, the specialist comes in to relieve somebody. <laughs> football has hitting, clipping, spearing, piling on, personal fouls, late hitting, and unnecessary roughness. Baseball has the sacrifice. Football is played in any kind of weather. Rain, snow, sleet, hail, fog. In baseball, if it rains, we don't go out to play. Football has the two-minute warning. Baseball has the seventh-inning stretch. Football has sudden death. Baseball has extra innings, free grace. In football, during the game, in the stands, you can be sure that at least 27 times you're capable of taking the life of a fellow human being. But in baseball, during the game, in the stands, there's kind of a picnic feeling. Emotions might run high or low, but there's not too much unpleasantness. And finally, 
the objectives of the two games are completely different. In football, the object is for the quarterback, also known as the field general, to be on target with his aerial assault, riddling the defense by hitting his receivers with deadly accuracy in spite of the blitz, even if he has to use the shotgun. With short bullet passes and long bombs, he marches his troops into enemy territory, balancing his aerial assault with a sustained ground attack that punches holes in the forward wall of the enemy defensive line. In baseball, the object is to go home <laughs> and be safe. Yeah. yeah. Just want to note you, you clapped for George Carlin in church today. All right. So we've been in a sermon series on prayer, and Pastor Paul has been encouraging us to seek a continuous union with God through prayer. He's talked about how the noise and the busyness of this life can interrupt that union and that we are to seek time away with God to get away from the noise and the distractions. And then last week he talked about the, the impact of prayer on our minds and how it's critical to seek God in prayer so that we can have the mind of Christ and navigate the difficult and complex challenges that we face every day. Day. He talked about how we need to be intentional about this, that we need to be disciplined in our prayer life, and that there is much fruit in that, and that our union with God will only strengthen through that. I think in one way, Pastor Paul is encouraging us to see prayer as a constantly available refuge like home, or at least a way the way that home is supposed to be. Do you see prayer like that? Does prayer feel like a refuge? Does it feel like home? Or does it feel like a foreign place? Richard Foster in his book, Prayer, Finding the Heart's True Home, says this. In the beginning of his book, he says this. And God, that it's, God is inviting you and me to come home to come home to where we belong, to come home to that for which we were created. His arms are stretched out wide to receive us. His heart is enlarged to take us in. For too long we've been in a far country, a country of noise and hurry and crowds, a country of climb and push and shove, a country of frustration and fear and intimidation. And he welcomes us home. Home to serenity and peace and joy. Home to friendship and fellowship and openness. Home to intimacy and acceptance and affirmation. We do not need to be shy. He invites us into the living room of his heart where we can put on old slippers and share freely. He invites us into the kitchen of his friendship where chatter and batter mix in good fun. He invites us into the living room of his strength where we can feast to our heart's delight. He invites us into the study of his wisdom, where we can learn and grow and stretch and ask all the questions that we want. He invites us into the workshop of his creativity, where we can be co-laborers with him, working together to determine the outcome of events. He invites us into the bedroom of his rest, 
where new peace is found and where we can be naked and vulnerable and free. It's, it is also the place of deepest intimacy where we know and are known to the fullest. My question for you this morning, does prayer feel like that to you? Did you even know it was possible for prayer to feel like home? At least the way a home is supposed to feel like. Eugene Peterson said that his primary task as a pastor was to teach people to pray. And this is from his book, The Contemplative Pastor. He says this, My conviction that my primary educational task as pastor was to teach people to pray. I did not abandon and will not abandon the task of teaching about the faith, teaching the content of the gospel, the historical backgrounds of biblical writings, the history of God's people. And I have no patience with not knowingly giving comfort to anti-intellectual tendencies in the church, but there is an educational task entrusted to pastors that is very different from that that's assigned to professors. And the educational approach in all schools I attended conspired to ignore this. He's basically saying the schools I went to ignored this. The wisdom of ancient spiritual leaders who trained people in the disciplines of attending to God. Eugene Peterson is saying that in, when in his schooling, he saw there was schools, schools ignoring the wisdom of ancient spiritual leaders who trained people in the disciplines of attending to God. Forming the inner life so that it's adequate to receive truth and not just the acquisition of facts. And lastly, Eugene says, the more I work with people at or near the centers of their lives, where God and human faith and absurd love and indifference were entangled in daily traffic jams, the less it seemed that the way I had been going about teaching made much difference, and the more that teaching them to pray did. You see, I think here it's obvious that Eugene Peterson and Pastor Paul seem to be very aligned. As pastors, it is important for them to invite us and teach us how to pray. To pray in such a way that it deepens our intimacy with God. To learn how to be present to God, or to use Peterson's words, to attend to God. To seek and deepen our, and strengthen our union with God. And I just want to make a comment here. Don't you love our pastor? Don't you see how he spent three weeks of this start of this year, this, this fall, imploring us to do this? It is clearly on his heart. So, how do we do this? How can we seek a deeper union with God through prayer? How can we make prayer not feel like a dry, desolate, empty, rote, boring, routine, and foreign place? How can we make prayer feel like home? Are there any clues in, scriptures, in the scriptures? Is there any guidance from Jesus and the disciples and the apostles that we can look to? Well, Eugene Peterson's already given us a clue. He referenced the wisdom of the ancient spiritual leaders who trained people in the disciplines of attending to God. 
And today's sermon is going to be a practical sermon, answering the question, how can we make prayer feel like home? And I submit to you, the answer is in the, to that question is found in the ancient disciplines, the sacred structures that have been with us for thousands and thousands of years. One of the most common ancient disciplines among the Jewish people in the first century was three things. They would do three things. Almsgiving, giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. You find this all over ancient Jewish texts. In the Apocrypha, which is the the books of the Bible, like between the end of the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are several books. The books of Tobit, the books of Sirach, which talk about almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. Philo, Josephus, Dead Sea Scrolls. Almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. These three practices were considered central disciplines among the Jewish people at the time of Jesus. Side note, remember, whenever you read the Bible, we're jumping into a context that's ancient, and it's foreign from our own, like over 2,000 years ago. And there's so much going on in that verse that we may not pick up on unless we know the context. So, in your Bibles, Matthew 6, our passage for today, I just want you to glance at that passage and look at the headers. You'll notice there's a section on prayer. It includes the Lord's Prayer. But what's above it? You'll notice that there's a section on almsgiving, giving to the needy, giving to the poor. And what's after prayer? There's a section on fasting. This is a really big clue. Because what Jesus is addressing is something that was going on at the time. Look at, look at uh, chapter 6, verse 2. It says, Jesus says, when you give to the poor. And in 6, verses five, verse 5, he says, when you pray. And in 6, 16, he says, when you fast. He's not saying if you give, if you pray, or if you fast. Jesus knew they were already doing this according to the custom. And this is a clue that the disciples themselves were following these ancient customs, these ancient disciplines. A little teaching here. When it comes to prayer, the the Jewish custom was to pray at nine in the morning, at noon, and at three. The Psalms make reference to the idea of praying various times a day. Psalm 115 says they prayed seven times a day. Psalm 55, 17 says, evening and morning and at noon, I will pray and cry aloud and he shall hear my voice. Daniel in, six, uh, Daniel in, in the book of Daniel, chapter 6, verse 10, is described as praying three times a day. And This is cool. In Acts 3.1, right before the very first miracle of Pentecost, it says that Peter and John went up to the temple at the, quote, hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Chapel Hill. They were doing it. They were following the customs. In Acts 10 verses 9, it says this. Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. That was right before his vision. They were doing it. The disciples followed the ancient disciplines of prayer. To say that differently, they had sacred structures around their prayer life that they adhered to. And the purpose of these sacred structures was to remember. To remember who God is, who we are, and why we're here. In the midst of all the noise and all the challenges that life brings us, these ancient disciplines, these sacred structures, 
was to help us remember who God is, who we are, and why we're here. Now, I, I know what you might be thinking, this, all this talk about like regular prayer time and praying at certain times of the day. You, you're probably thinking, Muslims do this, right? And um, I remember I was, I was talking to Pastor Paul about this, and he, he was telling me a story about, um, oh, wait, Paul, you're here. Paul, you just want, you just want to, oh, will you just stand and uh, tell, me what, tell, tell them what you told me? I certainly will, Peter, and this is why I carry a microphone with me at all times. <laughs> just in case someone asks me to share. <laughs> he, no, he always has a mic. It's just a thing. <laughs> no, no ego issues there at all, right? Um, Okay, so this is, we, we lived in a Muslim country, we lived in Senegal for five years, and um, this was very characteristic of their culture and their belief system, is they had set times, and so we have memories of that, we have memories of the call to prayer, the music, the chanting that went on, all the rest of that. We also have a lot of memories of taxi rides. And, and that's kind of a crazy thing, but it's connected. And let me show you how. We, we went everywhere, especially early on, we went everywhere in taxis. And it was always an adventure. Um, and I'll tell you just a really quick story. Early on when we were there, just a few weeks after we arrived, we were taking a taxi to go to a tourist site, a tourist attraction in the capital city of Senegal. And um, we needed to take a taxi to get there. We got in the taxi. We told the guy where we wanted to go. And he said, oh, the, the, it, this, was, this involved taking a ferry over to an island that was nearby. And um, he let us know that the last ferry was leaving very soon. And if we didn't get there quickly, we weren't going to make it. And so we said, can you get us there on time? So that's a challenge, and he took the challenge up, and white-knuckling it all the way, we rode as this maniac driver took us through the capital city to get us down to the port where the ferry was, including specific moments that stood out, one of which was racing down the sidewalk in the capital city, people diving out of the way, we're flying through, he's hitting things, we're cruising along, and all the while, on the radio, is the theme song of the local news show, and the theme song was the theme from Chariots of Fire. And so we have this going, and we're flying down a sidewalk, about to die, and, but this is a taxi memory. But one of our other taxi memories was the first time we realized just how important this prayer time thing is to the people in Senegal. Because as we're driving along, we're taking a, a taxi ride, and being Westerners, we want to be on time. We have a schedule. We need to be on time for things. And so we're driving along, in the, riding along in the back of a taxi, and all of a sudden, it's Friday, and it is 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And we're about halfway to where we were going. So what does he do? At 2 o'clock on the nose, pulls the car over to the side of the road, gets out, gets his prayer mat out of the trunk, rolls it out facing Mecca, and goes through his ritual prayers. And we just sat there awkwardly in the back seat of the taxi. But there was nothing more important, including business, than him taking time for a two o'clock prayer. And that's the kind of thing we experienced on a regular basis. Awesome. Thank you, Paul. So we see evidence that the disciples did something like this. And while we don't have decisive evidence, if you look, there's not decisive evidence, I think it's fair to assume that Jesus also did this. 
It's common, you read throughout the New Testament, it says that he went, Jesus went away into a desolate place and spent time with God on a regular basis to the point where in Luke 11, the disciples are asking Jesus, teach us how to pray. We see something, you teach us how to pray. But can you picture it? You're at work in the middle of a presentation, it's 9 a.m. and you're like, hold up guys, hold on a second, and you hit the ground. Or you're at school taking a test and it hits noon and you like slide out of your desk and hit the ground and start, start praying on your knees. Or you're at home and you have your, a baby in the bathtub and it's like three o'clock and you have to step away, close your eyes, bow your head. It's a bit inconvenient. But it's clear from Matthew 6 verses 5 that Jesus taught his disciples to do this differently. Not to make a scene, not to stop traffic, Rather, he says in chapter 6, 5, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues or at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, you have, they have received their reward. Jesus is saying that with your sacred structures, with these ancient disciplines, don't draw attention to yourself. The point isn't to bring society to a halt to make a scene. No, Jesus goes on to say in verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And if you grew up in church, you've heard this teaching hundreds of times, and perhaps you may actually have a designated physical place, like a prayer closet of sorts. And, and, And yes, Jesus could absolutely have in mind this, like a physical secret room in mind, but at that time, I, I was in Israel in, back in 2020 and I saw these ruins, these homes. At that time, these homes had like one room. There wasn't an extra room. Most, most homes was just a one-room structure. So while Jesus, yes, he may have meant a physical place, it's possible he meant something else. Some think that Jesus was referring to a prayer shawl, a tallit, you place over your head. And that that definitely could be true too. And I think there's a lot of powerful meaning. But many scholars think Jesus was simply referring to the privacy of your own heart. A place that you go where only you and God are. A secret place between you and God. He uses that word secret. It's likely that Jesus has in mind like the innermost room of the temple Remember the temple, the Holy of Holies, where only the priest could go? And I think this aligns with, with the Apostle Paul's teaching that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So go with me here. If you break down your lives like a temple, you have the outer court. That's your public persona. It's the place where everyone is. It's the, the public view of you. But there's an inner circle, right? An inner circle, that's a place where you get to invite who is in that circle, Only a select group of people gets to view you in that inner circle. You get to choose who's in that inner circle. It's it's an intimate place. But there's an even more intimate place. And that is the holy of holies in your life. And we're using this model, this picture. It's that private inner space where you bring your whole self before God. All your flaws, all your wounds, all your sins, your worries, your fears, your insecurities, your failures, your hopes, your dreams, your wishes, your desires, your passions, your questions, and your doubts before God. The inner room, the secret place. 
So can you picture that? Before you enter that meeting to give the presentation, before it's about to hit 9 a.m., you secretly enter into that secret place, that holy space between you and God. And you remember who God is and who you are and why you're here. Or before you sit down for that test at school and the clock hits noon, you secretly enter into that inner room and you pray and you remember. Or as you're giving your baby a bath and the clock hits three and you and God connect together in that private space and you remember who God is and who you are and why you're here. And when you do that, you remember it's not really about the presentation at work, that the thing that's been stressing you out. It's not about the test at school, the thing you've been studying for and you have a lot of anxiety over. It's not really about that. It's not even about your own kids, is it? You remember that what is ultimately true, you remember, remember what's ultimately true and what's, what ultimately matters and that there's something that's way more than work and way more important than school and way more important than your own kids and your own family. You remember so my question for you this morning is, do you know that place? That secret, private place where you commune with God alone. This inner room, the holy of holies in your soul, where God can meet you at any time or any place. What would help you get to that place on a regular basis? Maybe for some of you, it's simply thinking about it and just being more intentional. Yes. But for others, maybe you need a sacred structure like fixed times throughout the day to help you. Because that's an ancient discipline. And I've wondered, what happened to that practice of praying at fixed times, especially among evangelical church, the evangelical church? It's not something that we do. It feels kind of weird. Again, we go to Muslims first. Why do we rarely see these sacred structures like these anymore? Now, of course, we talk about our quiet times and our daily devotions, and that's very, very, very good and very similar. It aligns with this perfectly. But what about the other hours of the day, throughout the day, where we could intentionally stop midday or in the afternoon and go into our inner room and close the door and pray and remember with our Father in secrets? Well, I'm not going to go into a huge history lesson, but I think it, the Reformation has something to do with this. And in 1517, Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the door, and it was good. The church needed to be reformed. There was stuff that got really messed up and distorted. But the problem is that many of the things that were eliminated were not necessarily bad. In, in, in one sense, we kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater. There were good practices that were grouped up with practices that got abused and, and distorted, and they got thrown out. The other factor is this. We, within the evangelical church and the Protestant church, we fight legalism, and that's good. Legalism kills. Legalism makes, makes death. We should fight legalism. But I have to say, and this is a personal testimony right now, I need these practices. and Because whenever I'm approaching these sacred structures, and I, and I approach them in not a legalistic way, they are so life-giving. It, it's come, my favorite hymn in the last few years has been, I need you every hour. It, it becomes something I need hourly. Like three times a day actually feels too low. 
Because I've tasted what it's like when prayer feels like home. And it makes me want to go home several times a day. I've learned to long for it, to desire it. And when I go there, I feel safe and I remember who God is, who I am, and why I'm here. And for me, this all started in 2005. My wife and I spent two and a half months in New Zealand with Steiger International and their discipleship training school. And if you know anything about Steiger, they are very, very passionate about prayer. And it was two and a half months, so it was like a 12-week program. And every Friday was dedicated as Seeking God Friday. That meant every Friday, every student in the school and the teachers would go off alone with God and spend the whole day with God. And I have to say, when I first heard about this, I knew about this, I was nervous. Eight hours? That's a long time in prayer. But there was also this excitement in me. I was very pumped about doing this because I I expected something big to occur and, and change in me. And so the first day happened, like uh, that Friday morning, I kissed Joy goodbye and said, hey, have a great day. She, so she went off on her prayer walk and I went off on mine. And so I'm just walking and, and we're in New Zealand, right? So it's beautiful and we go down to the beach and we're all, I'm walking on the beach and I'm just like, God, this is our, you know, my day, right? And I'm so excited and, and I got all this stuff I want to go through and I'm walking on the beach and things are going well. And then there's this little creek that comes in from the land and it goes out to the ocean, I'm walking. It's not super wide, and so I decide to just, I'm just going to walk through it. So I take my first step into it, and I go all the way up to my waist in water. First step. And I'm like, oh, I did not expect that. (laughs) And then the next, I took the next step, and I just kept going and going until the water's up to my head. And I'm full-on swimming at this point, and then I crawl up embarrassingly on top of the beach, and now I'm sopping wet, covered in sand, and I spend the next seven hours sopping wet and cold on the beach. I was already uncomfortable with this. And now I'm even more so. And I tell you this story, but it kind of, like, the Seeking God Day I was so excited about, and there were some cool things that happened, but it did not feel like home. It was a struggle. Often days I would have like a great one or two hour of prayer time and some journaling and things like that. And then like the next six, I was like, okay, what am I going to do? And they always talked about like, oh, you can go take a nap. I'm like, I'm doing that. I'm going to take a nap. But it just like, did, like, that wasn't the purpose. In my mind, I wanted to learn to connect with God. And then something happened in me that was surprising. See, a little background on me. I grew up in the church. I've always been in church. I grew up in a family that valued church and ministry and serving the church. My my parents, my grandparents, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins, they all have made Christian ministry a huge part of their lives. And that's a really good thing. And I'm very proud of my family. And I feel very, very blessed to have grown up with them. But there's something a bit nasty that has also grown in me. And it's a type of pride and ego. It's a pride that, like, I intuitively know theology or scripture, or I could lead any Bible study or worship team, etc. I had this pride around ministry, and that pride also creeped into my prayer life. I 
am such a good prayer. I pray bold prayers. I was very impressed with my prayers and how well I prayed. It's strange to say that, but it was true that I, when I would pray, I would listen to myself pray, and I was so impressed. There was a lot of ego in my prayers. And so those 12 weeks in New Zealand, God dealt with that ego because I got sick of hearing myself. My prayers felt shallow and empty, and I noticed that I could not say a prayer without going into some low-grade pride or ego. I could not get there. I noticed that there was this, like this, what I call an infinite regression of ego in my prayers. What it means is that I would pray, and then I would be impressed with my prayer, but then I'd be aware of how impressed I was with my prayer, so I'd repent of that. And so then I'd be aware that I was aware that I was aware of that I was aware that I was aware that I was impressed with myself. I could not pray a prayer that I considered perfectly pure until I'd rediscovered the Lord's Prayer. And in that, the Lord's Prayer, there is that phrase, your kingdom come and your will be done. And I have fallen in love with that phrase. At 17 years later, I am still in love with that phrase. This is home for me. It's a place where I feel like I can truly meet God purely because I cannot take credit for that prayer. And in fact, the prayer itself is direct, directly saying, not my kingdom, not my will, not my pride, not my ego, your kingdom, your will. In those 12, 12 weeks, I didn't know at the time, but it planted a seed that grew and grew in me over several years. And my union with God is found when I'm working and driving and showering and walking and going into a tough meeting and about to preach a sermon. And I'm in my secret inner room praying, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come to my wife, joy, and your will be done for her on earth as in heaven. Your kingdom come and your will be done for my kids and my family and my church us on earth as it is in heaven. This has become survival with me. Think about a church. We eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner at relatively fixed hours. Praying the Lord's Prayer for me has become just as essential as eating for me. Because there is where I remember who God is and who I am and why I'm here and I remember what really matters. And occasionally, doesn't happen all the time, occasionally when I'm present with God like this, he allows me a glimpse into, to see what he's doing. I see more clearly. So, what would it take for you to make prayer feel more like home? Would it help just to think about it more? To be more intentional? To have a framework? To be more disciplined? Maybe to set fixed hours throughout the day? To that end, let me just look at a couple points and then we're going to wrap this up. In Matthew 6, if you look in Matthew 6, Jesus calls us to two things. Number one, pray authentically. And two, pray consciously. First, when we go into our inner rooms, he wants us to pray authentically. Look at verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the, as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for the many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask them. When you are with God in your inner room, the key is to be who you are. 
Come to God exactly the way you are. He already knows. This is what home is supposed to be like. It's a place where you can go and you can be and you are loved. You, don't, you do not need to clean up yourself before you enter the inner room. In his book, Letters to Malcolm, C.S. Lewis says, Lay before him what is in you, not what ought to be in you. Lay before God what is in you, not what ought to be in you. We need to learn to pray even when we are in sin. Maybe we're waging a battle over anger or lust or pride or greed or ambitious, d- ambition. Don't isolate these, selves, these things from prayer. Go home. Go to your inner room. Take them there. Talk to God about exactly what's going on inside. He already knows. Lift even your disobedience into the arms of God, the Father. He is strong enough to carry that weight. Yes, sin separates us from God, but trying to hide our sin separates us more. Pray authentically. This is key to making prayer feel like home. The second point is this. Pray consciously. The ESV says, don't heap up empty phrases. Other translations like the New, the New American Standard says, don't use thoughtless repetition. And the key here is thoughtless. There's nothing wrong with repetitive prayer. There's not a ban on repetitive prayer. Repetition is very helpful. It's thoughtless repetition is when things go south. It's when you pray, my Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. I pledge allegiance to the flag. Like, like that That's thoughtless. But repetition is good. It's helpful. There was a Jewish custom to pray the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. But when you do this, when you pray these prayers, engage your brain. Engage your heart. And use repetition to do that. Sometimes I don't know what to pray. In those eight hours, I didn't know what to pray on those, those Seeking God Fridays. But I would meditate on a truth, and I, I wanted to get that burned into my head or my brain, so I'd repeat it. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as in heaven, your kingdom come. Link it to, link it to, like, to, to big things like your family, your marriage, your kids' school, your work, your kingdom come to my marriage, to my kids, my family, my school. Your will be done in my marriage, in my family, in my kid, in my school, on earth as is in heaven. That's not meaningless repetition. Plus, I, I love this. this. This drives me. When I pray your will be done, it's because I'm, con- I, I, I'm excited about that because I am convinced that God's will is more beautiful, more powerful, more fulfilling than anything I could come up with. I desperately want his will done because I know that that will impact me and my family and generations to come in the most beautiful way possible. And I don't have the capacity within me, so I want his will done. Don't let the sacred structures become mindless, thoughtless, because it can easily become that. Pray consciously. Be conscious of who you're talking to. You say, our Father in heaven, our Father in heaven, when people call me Mr. Herzog, I kind of understand the, the, 
maybe the relationship that we have. But when they call me Petey or Pete, there's like a different type of relationship there, right? That they, I'm kind of known. When I'm called son or love, it establishes a different relational context. We're doing that here. Our Father in heaven. And there's only two people in the world today that call me daddy. And that word, daddy, can get my attention quicker than any other word. When I hear the word daddy, it's powerful. It's sobering. It reveals a relational context that's stronger than steel. So that whatever they arise with me, whatever problem they bring, whatever good news they celebrate, whatever they need or questions they have, it takes place in the context of one word, Father. We need to pray consciously. We need to be aware of and awake to who we're talking to. And sometimes we need help to do that. So what are your ancient structures? What are your ancient disciplines, your sacred structures? Sometimes it helps to be quiet and still. Sometimes it helps to listen to music. Sometimes fixed hours help. What will get you into that inner room? To close, a really fast story. I was reminded of a time when my daughter was three. I won't say who it was. But I was sitting on a chair, and she said, actually, I was standing, and she said, sit right here. So I sat. And then she came and sat next to me. So I'm sitting, actually, I'm sitting here. I couldn't confuse this anymore. I'm sitting here, and she sits just next to me. She's like kicking her feet. She's all excited, right? And then she gets up, and she starts running. And she's like running, 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 running. And she's running around the ottoman, and she runs into the other room. And like, I feel like she kind of like lost track of me. And she's just running, 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 running. And then, and then plopped herself back down and just looked at me and giggled and kicked her feet. You know how three-year-olds do. And then she got up again. And she's just running, 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 going about all around the, the, the house. And then she throws herself back on the, on the chair. And she's laughing. And I'm just like, and does it again and again. And that picture came to mind in this sermon. Because if she keeps doing that, she's going to feel at home with her father. If she keeps coming back, keeps coming back, keeps coming back. She's going to feel at home with her father. Let's pray. Father, my fear is that we tend to quickly move into legalism checklists. But I pray that this ancient discipline, this sacred structure would not become a dead thing, but be full of life for us. Lord, help us to find our way into that secret place, that inner room, that holy of holies, where we can commune with you, where we can have a new union, new bond with you like never before. I pray that this year, 20. 23, 2024, for us, there would be this fresh, new awareness of prayer. And that we would begin to see it in the same way we'd see a home. Help us to connect with you in new ways, deeper ways, and show us how to do that, Lord. In Jesus' name.
Amen.